We can't find time. We can't with the space-time continuum. There's only a different expectation over how we women are supposed to use our time. And until we interrupt that and believe that our time is diamonds, our time is equal regardless of how much money we make, regardless of whether our job is more flexible, regardless if we can do it quote-unquote better, none of this will change. Welcome back to Skim This. We're back in your feeds to bring you fresh episodes that help you live smarter. This time, instead of weekly episodes, we'll be dropping mini-series throughout the year that will focus on your health, wealth, and well-being. I'm still your host, Alex Carr, and I'm really excited to kick things off and talk about this one topic in particular. For the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about the state of women in America. I'm exhausted. Exhausted? Overworked and overdone. It's too much. We've despaired the state of the world. I hate this job. It's not working. My life is a dumpster fire. It's really hard being a mother. Being a wife. Second-class citizens. I'm so tired. A few weeks ago, I texted my group chat, asking them how they thought women across America were doing. The responses I got included worried, anxious, really overwhelmed, rebellious, oppressed, they're feeling strong. And it turns out that my not-so-scientific findings from my not-peer-reviewed study are actually pretty accurate. At The Skim, we teamed up with the Harris Poll to conduct a survey of 4,500 women about the state of women. And the response we got was overwhelming. Things are not working for women right now. So in this mini-series, we're going to dig into why. And more importantly, how women are writing the next chapter of being a woman in America. Today, we're going to talk about the state of women and society. And coming up in the next few weeks, we're going to look at the state of women and their finances, their careers, and their health. All right, let's get into it. To get the best understanding of how women are doing right now, we need to take a look at whether they feel supported by the structures in their lives, like the government, their community, their office, and their home. And the resounding answer was no, women don't feel supported. In fact, they're fighting to carve their own path in a society where they're systemically treated as less than. In our survey, 74% of millennial women said, Society treats women like second-class citizens and that the deck is stacked against women. And I'll be honest, when I read that, I thought 74% seems kind of low. As for what's contributing to why so many of us feel that way, just take a look at the last few years, where we've been forced to confront several realities. First, we had the pandemic, where women became the default unpaid caretakers in their homes if they weren't already. That caused women to drop out of the workforce or at least take a step back from their careers at an alarming rate. Women dropping out of the labor force has been one of the most persistent problems of the pandemic. We should be hitting that panic button. If we lose those women, we will unwind all the progress we've seen. Some are calling it a she session. How would you say you feel right now about the way you're juggling it all? Exhausted. What one survey described last year as a perfect storm raging against women because of the pandemic is now a burnout epidemic. That's not exactly an inspiring trend. To get specific, more than 2.3 million women left the workforce in the first year of the pandemic. Now they're starting to re-enter, 
but the hurdles they face haven't changed. And the weak structural supports exposed by the pandemic haven't been fixed. In fact, according to the Census Bureau, as of February of this year, around 5 million people weren't working because they were caring for children not enrolled in school or daycare. And for the women who are in the labor force, they're still massively underrepresented, overworked, and underrecognized. Still, despite knowing all of that, Congress hasn't taken action. There is bipartisan support for paid leave. There's just not bipartisan support for how to pay for it. But advocates In 2022, politicians debated and ultimately couldn't pass universal pre-K and paid family leave, policies that would dramatically relieve the financial and emotional burden on working families. And as a reminder, the U.S. is one of only a handful of countries in the world that does not offer paid family leave on a national level. Finally, not only did our respondents say society isn't taking action to support women, they also believe we're actually headed in the wrong direction as a country and entering a regressive period of women's rights. They pointed to last year when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. That decision, eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion after almost 50 years, has had an unprecedented effect on women's health and autonomy in America. And nearly one year later, we're just starting to understand all of the ripple effects. Women have sued their states, saying they've been denied proper health care and had their lives put at risk. They've been arrested for allegedly using the abortion pill, while the fate of that medication is now up in the air. And maternal health outcomes are getting worse. So after all that women have been through, it makes sense that our respondents said they felt like they had more control over the quality of food they put in their body than their rights as a woman. But here's the thing. Our survey found that while women are exhausted and disappointed, they haven't given up. They've simply given up on the illusion of external support. In fact, 83% of our respondents said, I'm done letting society dictate what a woman's role should be. And our findings show that women are already making seismic changes to how they live, finally prioritizing their own needs because no one else will. And for many, that first act of resistance actually starts with rethinking how we spend our time. We always hear time is our most valuable resource. But for women, it doesn't really feel like our time is valued. It's no secret that women often take on more household responsibilities when they have a family or get married, which can just feel like another full-time job. Not to mention, single women or those who are child-free often have fewer resources and face other obstacles like discrimination when they ask for help. So when we hear people talking about the fact that women can do it all or we can juggle so many things at once, it doesn't feel true to our experience. And that's why 83% of study respondents told us they're ready to take back their time. We wanted to know where we should actually start to rebalance that invisible labor at home and reclaim our time. So we called up an expert, Eve Rodsky. Eve is the New York Times bestselling author of Fair Play and Find Your Unicorn Space. And she spent her career fostering more fairness at home 
and inspiring women's individual fulfillment. All right, let's give her a call. So Eve, one of our biggest findings from our State of Women survey was that women are really looking to reclaim their time. And to me, you're known as someone who's really started the discourse around what that means and what fair play in the home means. So for people listening who might be less familiar, can you explain what fair play is and what it has to do with women and their time? Yes. Well, <laughs> let's just say I did not set out to be an expert on the gender division of labor. That was not what was on my third grade. What do you want to be when you grow up bored? When it probably said like astronaut or veterinarian. But over time, what I watched was that women were told, or especially I was told, Gen X was told that we could be anything. We could do anything. That we had agency over our lives. But then as I got older, I realized that actually that's not true, that time is our most valuable currency and women are conditioned to give that currency away for free. And you mentioned we have this societal issue where men are taught to think of their time as precious and women are basically told that they have infinite time and can fit it all and do it all and juggle it all. Where do we see these assumptions actually play out in our lives and what's the ripple effect of that? Well, what was interesting when I started to work on fair play and what fair play is, is really a recognition that a lot of the ills that affect women, whether it's their pay gap, whether it's the bias against them for being mothers, whether it's burnout, comes from the fact that women do all the invisible work for every single nation. There's not one nation where women are not assumed to be the primary caregivers and do all the housework and childcare. And so... When I developed Fair Play, which was based on the premise that to have women step into their full power in the world, we need men to step into their full power at home. What I realized was that the biggest barrier was actually how we perceive women's time. As you just mentioned, what I like to say is that women's time is viewed as infinite, like sand. And men's time is protected and guarded like it's a diamond. And if you don't believe me, uh, just look at all of the health curriculum in every 50 states that says that breastfeeding is free when it's really an 1800 hour a year job. If you don't believe me that women's time is less valuable than men's time, watch women or especially women of color enter a male profession. Salaries automatically come down. And on that first point of rebalancing the labor at home, I guess I want to know, how do you recommend someone start that conversation with the people in their household? I think it might feel uncomfortable or foreign or like we're reneging on responsibility. Like, how should we approach that first conversation? We know that in hetero cisgender relationships, when women are married to men, uh, once children are introduced into the relationship, men do five to 15 hours a week less, less. And especially if you think you have a fair partner, a lot of that times it doesn't, it doesn't always stay that way. And that is because of cultural expectations. And so we have to break these assumptions early. And part of it is seeing what you do now, right? And what I like to say is this is not about 50-50. I don't understand what that means. It never worked. That leads to scorekeeping. What fair play is about is literal fairness. What I'm not telling you how to live your life, but what I am telling you is that if you're going to not have conversations, if you're not going to treat your time as equal, no matter how much each of you make, and if you're not going to employ systems, then your relationship will fail. The system of fair play is based on boundaries. All time is created equal. 
systems and ownership mindset that you treat your home like your most important organization and communication. Then instead of having passive aggressive communication in the moment, which is the way we've been doing the home so long, that we start moving towards check-ins to having serious conversations when emotion is low and cognition is high. And so that boundary systems communication formula is something that I do not find is triggering to people once they understand it. What's triggering to people is thinking, oh no, everything has to be 50-50 and I have to come and disrupt the system or the non-system that we've been living in so far. That's a really interesting point. And I think something I've definitely experienced myself and I'm sure people in our audience have is you actually just don't realize how much time you're spending on stuff. Like you think going to the grocery store takes you 20 minutes, but you're not really accounting for all of the other things that you are doing that are adjacent to that task. So how do you recommend we conduct an accurate audit of our time, especially when so many of us don't fully understand how the minutes and hours are coming together? Well, I think the beauty is I did it for you. I mean, that's what the fair play cards are. They're a metaphor. The cards, the metaphor of the cards represent every single task you would have to do, raising a family and housework within a family unit, even a roommate unit. There's 60 cards if you don't have kids. That's the metaphor. It's a card game. You add 40 if you do. And there's wild cards. So what it is, it's a tool. It's a conversational tool to understand what you may be doing that is hijacking your time. And you don't want to be doing it all. So for example, bill pay. If you have children scheduling their extracurricular appointments, their doctor's appointments, making school lunches, signing up for Girl Scout cookies, ordering and sales, laundry and meals. But I think what happens is our time is hijacked because somehow we just think that running a home is meals and laundry and dishes. That's three of the hundred cards. And so what I like to do is for people to look at all the hundred cards and before they decide who's going to do what, which is a way to do a time audit. I like for people instead to start telling their stories. And so what do I mean by that? Over coffee, over a drink of wine, you pull a card. Hmm, okay, the groceries card. You ask your partner, who did grocery shopping growing up? What grocery stores did you go to? Were you responsible for the whole ownership of the menu and the grocery list all the way to bringing the stuff home? You start to have these conversations. And what I realize about the cards is that this is not only our humanity, but these conversations are not happening with couples. I ask couples, what grocery store did they go to growing up? What did their birthday parties look like? What was holidays like? A lot of people give me these blank stares, like I'm supposed to know this about my partner, but actually that forms all of their expectations about what their family systems are supposed to look like. So tell your stories. I also think something you said is really important for women to do is find their time for creative self-expression. And, you know, when I've read about that or thought about that, I'm kind of like, what am I not doing that would be fulfilling to me creatively? And I think sometimes that's an exciting thing to think about, but I think it can also be kind of daunting or like we have to become experts or masters or take on a couple new hobbies. Like, how should we approach, I suppose, that conversation with ourselves? Okay, so let's do a small exercise, or I'll tell you about one woman who did this exercise with me. I asked her to picture something that she loves to do. Not a passion, not something you did in the past. The first thing she picked was memories and archiving, because she said she has so many pictures, she wants to put them in books. I said, okay, there sounds like when you said should, that there's guilt and shame 
around that task. So that one gets thrown out. Something that you love to do that is not attached to guilt and shame or that there's a should attached to it. So she finally says, well, I've been indoors so much in the pandemic, like the outdoors are really what I love to do. I love being outdoors. And so I said, well, where are you outdoors? Picture where you are. So she says to me, well, if I'm my happiest, I'm, you know, on the side of a mountain with a friend, I'm taking a really strenuous hike or I've signed up for a hiking group. And so then this is where the conversation should change if someone is doing this for the first time. Instead of saying to your friend, have you gone on a hike this week? Or did you get to do your pottery this week? What I ask your audience in this exercise with us, pick something you love to do. It's not attached with guilt and shame. And then I want you to write down six values, six values that are attached to that task. So you go backwards. So from outdoors, the two that I remember the most was freedom and risk and serenity. So instead of ending the exercise by saying you should hike more, what I said to her was that your values that you care about right now, or at least some of them, are freedom, risk, and serenity. And you deserve those. And so you want to ask yourself each week, did I have a chance to feel free this week from all my obligations? Did I have a chance to take risks this week? Did I have a chance to feel serene this week? That's how you begin a practice of starting to understand your deeply held values that society doesn't put on you. And when you can start investing in those values and they can change, then there's many activities, right, Alex, that you, that you could do that have freedom and risk and serenity in them that aren't just hiking. That's what I ask people to do. That's the exercise where I like to start. I want to know how you think about accountability when it comes to fair play and finding that time for creative self-expression. How do we hold ourselves accountable to this new way of thinking about our time? Such a great question. These are the three questions I would ask yourself when you think about accountability, because these are often the things that will interrupt you from a daily practice of reclaiming your time as your most valuable currency. The three questions to ask yourself are, one, do I believe I deserve a permission to be unavailable for my roles? One of the things that women all over the world can look at each other and say we're connected by is the fact that at some point we will be defined by assumption or our roles. Do I believe I can be unavailable for my roles as a partner, a parent, a professional? That's number one, because a lot of times women are telling me availability is literally part of their identity. When I ask them to close their eyes and not pick up the phone when their boss is calling or the school is calling, they get stress responses just in picturing it. So that's number one. Number two is, do you believe that you deserve to make decisions that are not rooted in guilt and shame? Because many of our decisions and the way our time gets hijacked is because the shoulds of what you are supposed to be doing in service of others services before yourself. And number three, do you have the tools to ask for what you need? If you can answer yes to all three of those, I believe I deserve to be unavailable. I can, I deserve time without guilt and shame and I have the tools to ask for what I need, then it's much more easy to become accountable to yourself. My last question for you is just a personal one. Is there something you did or wish you had done differently when it came to setting boundaries with your own time? Of course. I mean, the biggest regret of my life was that I allowed other people to dictate my life for me. Or as one woman said to me, you know, we talk about being complicit in our own oppression, that I allowed 
my partner to believe I have a magical vagina that whispers in my ear and tells me what his mother wants for Christmas. That's what I did to myself. I truly believed that having it all meant doing it all. And I so regret that now. I so regret this idea that the same assumptions that ended up almost ruining and destroying my marriage and my career were the ones that I also bought into. And part of that is because I said four things to myself. And so I ask anybody out there, if you're saying these four things to yourself, please, please interrupt them because none of them are true. Number one, I do X, Y, and Z, whether it's cleaning up the dog shit, taking the dog out, ordering the boss's birthday cake because my partner makes more money than me or my job is more flexible. Women who are doctors, men are lawyers. Women say their, their job is more flexible. You switch it, the woman is a lawyer, the man is a doctor. Guess what? She says her job is more flexible. Please don't say that to yourself. Number two, please don't say that you're a better multitasker or you're somehow wired differently for care. There's no gender difference in the brain for how we task switch. Number three, please don't ever say to yourself in the time it takes me to tell him or they what to do, I should do it myself. As Dan Ariely, one of my good friends, talks about, he's a behavioral economist, that's just devaluing your future time. Of course, it makes sense to tell somebody how to do something or to work with them on it early, because otherwise you do it for an infinite amount of time. And the last thing, please don't say, yes, we're both colorectal surgeons, but my partner is better at focusing on one task at a time and I can find the time. What I want to end with is, look, we're not Albert Einstein. We can't find time. We can't fuck with the space-time continuum. There's only a different expectation over how we women are supposed to use our time. And until we interrupt that and believe that our time is diamonds, our time is equal regardless of how much money we make, regardless of whether our job is more flexible, regardless if we can do it, quote unquote, better, none of this will change. Eve, thank you so much. After hearing from Eve, I think a lot of us are interested in going home and starting that conversation with the people in our household around what our balance of labor has looked like. So I thought we could end this episode with just a script of what you can say to get that conversation going. The first thing that's most important is actually making time for the conversation. You can try saying something like, can we find time in the next day or week to go over our to-do list? Then when you get to the conversation, it's really important to be honest with your partner about how taking on all this unpaid extra work has impacted you and what your concerns are. Here's an example of what you could say. I'm scared that I'm falling behind on this project I've been assigned at work because I've been taking our child to every appointment and they've been sick for the past two weeks. Next, ask what they think. How have they perceived the balance of labor recently? You can ask them something like, what are you most worried about right now? And then once both of you have had the chance to speak, come up with a plan together. Try something different, try multiple solutions, and don't be afraid to document how you're doing with it. Has it made your life better? Has it made your life worse? Then you can schedule time to check back in and actually see how things went for the both of you. And here are some questions you can ask in those check-ins. Did we meet the desired goal? Did either of us feel overwhelmed? And how can we better support each other? These questions are all meant to be a jumping off point. So let us know if you try any and how you felt after the conversation. In our show notes, you can also find our piece, Send This to a Man, 
So you can do just that and give specific instructions for men about what to say and do to support women in scenarios where gender discrimination is all too common. We'll also be linking out to Eve's website so you can learn more about her and her work. And skim this, the state of women will be back in your feed again next Thursday. We're going to be taking a look at the state of women and their finances. Thanks for listening and catch you next week. This episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with Andrew Calloway and Ellie McAfee-Hong.